the word free trade agreement became a bad word in our country. Another four-letter word. <laughs> free is four letters, but the same thing. People in America have the feeling we're giving things away once again. Once again, America is just giving stuff away. So that's why you have the USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. The word free does not appear. The open, rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we will talk about the U.S. trade agenda after the midterms. Now, for President Joe Biden, the midterms went better than expected. Though his party lost the House of Representatives, the loss was less than expected, and the Democrats maintained control of the Senate. Now, in some ways, this could give a boost to the policies of the previous two years, or it could enable President Biden to become more bold. In other words, how will the outcome of the midterm elections impact Biden's approach to trade, if at all? And what can we expect in the coming two years? Now, in earlier podcast conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series, numerous experts have been rather lukewarm about U.S. trade policy. People are really, I think, waiting for more U.S. engagement. And today, we are having this conversation amidst increased EU-U.S. tensions over things like the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. And besides, everyone is wondering whether the, the U.S. will return to the World Trade Organization as a constructive partner. To take a closer look at this, I'm joined by two terrific thinkers in the field. First of all, I'm pleased to welcome Fred Hochberg from nowhere else but Miami. Now, Fred served as the chairman and president of the Export-Import Bank of the United States from 2009 to 2017. He was the longest-serving chairman in that institution's history. He also served for five years as dean of the Milano School of International Affairs, Management, and Urban Policy at the New School in New York City. And he's been a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Institute of Politics and the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. He is also the author of the excellent book, Trade is Not a Four-Letter Word. And from Berlin, I'm joined by Stormy Arnika Mildner. Stormy is the executive director of the Aspen Institute in Berlin. She is an expert on transatlantic relations, foreign policy, and international trade. Previously, she was the head of Department for External Economic Policy at the Federation of German Industries, the BDI, and has been closely involved in, amongst others, Germany's presidency of the G20. So guys, let's get started. And Fred, I think over to you first. How, how should we best characterize Biden's approach to trade? And how different, perhaps, is it from Trump's? Thank you, and thanks for inviting me to join you and Stormy today uh, on this podcast. In some ways, there's some similarities, in some ways, uh, stark differences. President Biden 
uh, through his long career in government and in the Senate and as vice president, has a clear interest in engaging with, with the rest of the world and engaging in a way that has uh, appropriate give and take, advocating for American interests, but being aware of the interests of other countries. And that's a contrast, I think, from the previous administration, which was encapsulated by America first, which looked like America alone. And that's not at all where President Biden is coming from. At the same time, President Biden has his own, we have our own national political considerations. And as you mentioned, Ren, we just had an election. You know, we very, very closely almost retained the House, which was which had been unprecedented in a midterm election. And actually, uh, looks like we may well build our majority uh, in the Senate. So that's a very strong report card and a strong vote of confidence by the American people. As most perfect poll as you can get is an election. So in that way, I would say yes. And then I would add the um, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. It's not the greatest acronym. IPEF is, is a demonstration without the Trans-Pacific Partnership of engagement with much So let's, let's talk about IPEF a little, a little bit later. And I want to get to sort of how the midterm elections may or may not influence the, 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 trade, the trade agenda. But first, in Stormy, your initial reflections of the past two years of, of Biden's trade mm -hmm. policy, where, where do you come out? Yeah, first of all, uh, many thanks for having me, Rem. It's, it's really cool to be part of this podcast um, and discussing this uh, with Fred. I remember that um, two years ago, the, the hopes were pretty high that there would be um, a big change in U.S. trade policy making. I mean, the four previous years under, under the Trump administration with the America first and aggressive unilateralism were quite painful for the transatlantic relationship. And I remember because I worked on, I mean, a lot on TTIP issues, and then we had four years of really, really difficult uh, relations. Um, so hopes were pretty high. And I would say that that some of the hopes were actually fulfilled and some weren't. And I agree very, very much with, with Fred that there are big changes between the two administrations, um, not just rhetoric, but also style. And as we all know, the, the tone also makes the music. Um, Biden, I mean, he really values the transatlantic relationship. I think he's, he, he, he might even be one of the last U.S. presidents who are true, true transatlanticists. And um, he wanted to build the relationship back um, to a better standing, a better base. He believes in international law and predictability and transparency. And he reached out to the Europeans immediately after the elections and sat down with von der Leyen um, to agree on an agenda. But then also a little bit of disappointment came in quite quickly because trade was not on the top of the agenda, which isn't surprising. I mean, we were in the middle of, of a huge pandemic, which huge effects, and he wanted to build back better at home and get the pandemic um, in check and also stabilize the economy. So stimulus was high on, on, on his agenda. The infrastructure bill was high on the agenda. I mean, many, many internal issues. We also had our internal issues, obviously. And then I also agree with Fred, though, that some aspects, I mean, there's still a, I would say, some policies he continued because he needs to reflect what his base wants, what the country wants. And that leads us to a continuation of some 232 tariffs, 301 tariffs, the, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. It's really not so surprising, but it is in a way also painful for the Europeans to see that in some aspects it is American interest first. In, in, in a second. Um, but just on the new calculus in Congress. 
And that right now leads to quite a bit of uh, renewed friction, I yeah. would say. Yeah, and we'll, we'll look at that a little bit closer. Does it make any difference? Fred, I mean, the fact that the house was almost retained, but but isn't, is it, does that matter to U.S. trade policy going forward? Will it change USTR's priorities or more the fact that it was a kind of a moral boost to, as you say, kind of a vote of confidence in the previous two years that will allow Biden to move forward? Let me reflect on one or two things that Stormy said. One, I think both parties are, I would use the word trade shy. There's not a robust running towards a trade agenda. I think the Democrats have always had some conflicts around that. And when we've had recent trade deals in the past, they required many Republican votes to get passed. USMCA, United States, you know, Mexico-Canadian agreement, slightly different, where it was broadly bipartisan. So you have that. And two, I would also say, you know, President Trump talks a lot about America first. Every American president has put America first. I mean, and the EU countries and the EU in general put the EU first as they need to and should. Uh, just to call that out, I mean, that was really just kind of rubbish in the past. Now, to your question in terms of there will be a new chair of the Ways and Means Committee, which looks over trade in the House. There are three Republicans who are vying for that. I think they're much more trade forward leaning. So we may see some activity there, but the Republican caucus, the Republican majority is very thin, very fractured. Former President Trump still has a lot of sway over members of his party. It's more in the Senate, but, you know, J.D. Vance, who's very much in the Trump alignment, won the Senate race in Ohio. So I'm not as so sure that traditional Republicans, you know, Senator Rob Portman, who was formerly a United States Trade Representative and in the Senate, retired. J.D. Vance took his place in the Senate. So I'm not sure that there's going to be that much of a charge and forward lean with such slight majority, both in the House and not a real change yeah, in the Senate. And it doesn't seem to be like there's a, a whole lot of appetite for trade promotion authority. Uh, uh, Stormy. Yeah, I just wanted to come in on this. Um, just looking at the tools which uh, President Biden would have. Um, of course, I mean, we, we all know constitutionally um, the power to make trade policy lies with the uh, with the Congress and not with the executive. Looking at the majorities and how much political capital it would get to, uh, to, to get trade promotion authority, I don't think he's going to try. I mean, he's, he's never going to get above the, uh, the the hurdles in the Senate. Why should the Republicans give him such a big political win? And and then also the base, his base, the unions, the worker-centric approach and so on. I think it would take way too much political capital. And without trade promotion authority, I don't see that there is any any way really to get ambitious, meaningful free trade agreements negotiated or through Congress. So I don't see that coming. With regard to tariffs, I mean, that is um, something he could reduce or could increase, 232 or 301 tariffs, which have been mainly applied in the um, U.S.-China relationship. Mm -hmm. I don't see that yeah. being reduced because, again, of internal uh, reasons, but also because of the conflictual situation with, with China. So I don't see any big changes coming there either. And I I also, there are few areas in which there's 
so much bipartisan support as in U.S.-China policy. And then the third one is, however, a agreement, kind of agreement type where you don't need the Congress for, where you don't need any ratification for. And those are the um, trade and technology agreements, um, which bring us to the TTC, the Trade and Technology Council with the EU, or in a sense also a little bit at, uh, at IPEF. And that is something which I could, could see more coming and also maybe resource partnerships to have more access to certain critical metals and minerals, um, agreements in these directions, which are not treaties, which are not super legally binding, which are more cooperative, which are more almost like a coordination of certain policies instead of market access agreements. Yeah. Those are actually more more political, right? That's why they're they're not really covered by Congress. Fred? I was going to say, I think that agreements, executive agreements like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, it's like, it's dating. Why don't we start dating first before going steady <laughs> or getting engaged or getting married? And I think that the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework better fits right now with American politics. Rem, you mentioned my book. I put in my book, trade is not a full letter word, you know, having these trade agreements that pass with one vote leaves a lot of people sore and angry. And so the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and there may be, maybe there'll be one with something in that, that ilk with Taiwan or with Kenya, as a, and they could be a precursor to a more formalized free trade agreement. So one is get people used to it and get them then clamoring, say, gee, if we only had this, we could get another agreement. The other thing is the word free trade agreement became a bad word in our country. Another four-letter word. Free is four letters, but the same thing. People in America have the feeling we're giving things away once again. Once again, America is just giving stuff away. So that's why you have the USMCA, the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement. The word free does not appear. When we were negotiating TTIP with the Europeans, the word free does not appear. I think that that language means something. But if IPEF is dating, what is the TTC? Is that is that kind of a, a long courtship? Because, uh, the, I mean, the question from a European angle is how long can you date before it materializes into something more structural or tangible? And I wonder, and perhaps this is for you, Stormy, is um, is this the most of what we should expect from Biden in this in this first term? That it's more about dating, it's, it's more about having these coordinating mechanisms, these political dialogues, these intentions, rather than real tangible, either market access or, or liberalizing agreements? So I think some Europeans would love to go steady. Um, and some, I think, would also love to go exclusive at this point. <laughs> and, and I would say some, to stay in that anal analogy, some are also getting a little bit of a dating fatigue. Um, <laughs> but joke aside, um, I think our traffic light, new traffic light coalition, the in, in Germany. SPD, yeah. In yeah. Germany, I'm sorry, in Germany, um, is, I mean, at least two of the two of the three partners, the SPD and the Green uh, and the FDP, would be pretty much in favor of having something more ambitious, even like a free trade agreement. Maybe not as ambitious as the TTIP negotiations, cutting out um, lots of the controversial regulatory issues, cutting out the controversial investment protection chapters, focusing a little bit more on industrial tariffs and some policy coordination and so on. The Greens also put forward a new trade agenda where they are also more open for free trade agreements, but with a strong environmental and 
uh, also labor focus in it. So they would, they, I think they would like to see something more ambitious than the TTC. But to be honest, within the European Union, there are also different views. Um, thinking about our neighbor, France, um, would not be so keen on a free trade agreement. I think it would also be very, very hard for us to ratify. And in addition, um, as, as Fred said, the appetite on the U.S. side is very low for an ambitious free trade agreement um, because of all the issues around it. So the best thing we can do is, first of all, solve all the still remaining conflicts, which are not yet completely solved, um, which are only temporarily solved, like the aluminum and steel tariffs and also the aviation subsidies. Th those are compromises with a deadline. Then try to get to get in check the new conflicts coming up on the um, Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, and then get as much done on uh, regulatory issues and coordinating issues as possible and, and create an institutional structure around this, which is sustainable. I think this is, this is the best we can currently do, talk to each other, get rid of these uh, lost in translation problems. And I mean, in a lot of issues, we still have tons of misunderstandings, I think. Talk about China, um, where we come from and where we differ and where we can do something together. But if we, I, I just don't see it currently that there is a, I mean, a market access binding trade agreement possible or desirable at this at this time. I think Stromy has it right. I was just listening to her. I mean, and I jotted down, you know, there are issues to work to get. First of all, the United States has been very forward and very powerful and very strong on Ukraine. And we'll have to see if that changes somewhat with Republicans uh, in charge of the House of Representatives, where there's been less agreement and concert on that. But that's been a very forward leaning on President Biden's part. And then we have issues, you know, about renewable energy. We're just coming out of the pandemic. So issues about how we share information about health, vaccines, because there will be some other COVID-like regrettably coming, you know, it's, it will come sooner than 100 years. It's 100 years from 1918. It's going to it will not be another hundred years till we see something like this. We have things on energy integration, which is is really making life difficult and costly, and may have severe economic impact in in Europe. Uh, and then we have, as, as Stormy mentioned, technology and transfer and so forth. So there are a lot of things to work on outside of purely a free trade agreement and tariff reduction. And in some way, these other ones seem more important and more pressing at the moment. I would guess that also with the next two years that there would be an interest from both the U.S. administration and from the Europeans to try to, to cement a number of these new structures that have been created to ensure that they are kind of election proof, that they're not one-offs, that they're not ad hoc. And the TTC, right. of course, comes comes to mind, perhaps also IPEF. But I think it's it's relevant also to note that other countries around the world are still very much engaged in the process of signing free trade agreements. If you just look at the plurilaterals about CPTPP or, or RCEP, or if you look also at the EU's quite, quite ambitious FTA agenda, in the the odd one out is here the United States. And I guess the question is then, what is the legacy that Biden wants to to leave behind? I mean, we, of course, we don't know what happens in the 2024 elections, but is there like a, a master plan that you can devise what he's pushing for when it comes to trade? I think when it comes to trade, President Biden is appropriately focused on American workers and American jobs. I remember when I was chairman of the Export Import Bank, and I was in London meeting with some bankers, and he said to me, you know, in the 18th and 19th century, it was 
famine and starvation that toppled governments. And in our time, it's going to be jobs. And so I think President Biden, whether it's the CHIPS Act, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act and and so forth, it's about ensuring well-paying, good American jobs. I think more of those jobs personally should be in the service sector, in technology, financial services, entertainment, education, where we excel. But the American mythology and the American romance has been with manufacturing and in factories. And I think that's that's a little bit nostalgic. You know, I'll give you a quick data point. You know, something like maybe 9% of American employ- uh, workers are involved in manufacturing. Half of those are the accountants, HR, sales, uh, and so forth. So we're down to maybe 4%. And frankly, with the change in technology and automation, the 4% is likely to go down to 3%. There is still something about an American-made car, airplane, power plants that gets people, that's what they think is America's strength and might. It's It's a little bit of a 1950s view of where our economic destiny rests. I would just throw out in my book, you know, more people lost their job in retail uh, in 2018, 2019 is the shift to online than employed in the entire coal industry or steel industry. But no one cared about them. Why? Partly they're women, they're people of color, and they're not part of the American mythology of sort of the man working and bringing home, quote unquote, the bacon for his family. And that mythology is still powerful. And and Stormy, as a a fellow European, what, what position does that put us in? Well, first of all, I wanted to to, to add, I, I agree with everything what Fred said. I think policymakers at the same time have to be very careful with their narratives. Trade is still very important, I would say, in my eyes. Um, it contributes to, to wealth, to GDP growth, um, to jobs, to income. It doesn't do all of this automatically um, and the, the right institution and also adjustment mechanisms need to be in place for those who do lo- lose their jobs. But it's still, I mean, it lifted millions of people out of poverty worldwide. And the narrative which I am seeing, and I'm also seeing it here in, in Europe, is that trade is perceived more and more as bad, as liability, as risk. Um, and the less you trade, the more you do at home, the less you are dependent on autocratic regimes and dictatorships and the safer you are. Therefore, you should relocate home. You should, if you trade, only trade with allies and partners and friends, but it would be, the best would be to have everything at home. And I always say, oh, don't use this rhetoric, don't use this narrative, because it's not better to, we are not able to do everything at home. We depend on international markets and we are feeding into a sentiment which leads to island thinking and isolationism. And I think we need to very much counter this narrative at home and counter the the fears which are fueled by this narrative. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on the Biden trade agenda and the impact of the U.S. midterms. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, 
the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break. We're going to continue talking with Stormy Annika Mildner and Fred Hochberg about the Biden trade agenda. Stormy has it exactly right. We would not have this vaccine that has saved millions of lives without trade, without the raw materials being able to move around the world and vaccines moving. Just as one specific example, and I agree with Stormy entirely. It's why the, the book I wrote was to rebut this view that trade was a bad idea. It is improve the living standards of people, millions around the world. It's improved the living standards of Europeans and Americans by providing products, innovations, lower costs, more competition. You know, I'll give you an example. American cars in the 1980s, the big three, GM, Ford, and Chrysler had 90% of the market before the 1980s, and we didn't make very good cars. I would say that the importation of cars from Europe and Japan actually improved American quality, actually, I believe, saved the car industry because left to its own devices, the cars would have been more and more expensive and less and less reliable. So trade actually, although was seen as hurting the auto industry, I believe is the only thing that saved our auto industry. Stormy and I are on the same page. It's just hard to get that narrative right. across right And, and um, I may ask you a little bit later on about why that's the case or what kind of tips we can give to policymakers to try to make that case for trade. Just sticking with, with the issue of cars, one specific issue right now is electric vehicles and the whole Made in America mythology that you addressed, Fred, which is has played, I think, at least subliminally, a role in terms of inspiring the Inflation Reduction Act, which now really is a primary issue of tension between the US and the EU. At the same time, I mean, Fred, you've mentioned it a couple of times already, there are perfectly logical reasons why Joe Biden is sort of pursuing a trade policy which is focused on either you know building back better, uh, protecting U.S. jobs, or uh, trying to boost the economy. From a European perspective, it seems to be kind of economically nationalist, if not protectionist. And so I guess the question is, in light of the current discussion regarding the Inflation Reduction Act, and both the US and the EU share the objective to reduce dependencies on China, to move forward with the green transition, to become less vulnerable in terms of our critical resources supply chains. But in spite of that, we are on the cusp of potentially having a transatlantic green trade war. How should Europeans respond to this more muscular approach to the green transition, Stormy? Um, first of all, I would say we need to be aware of what Fred explained earlier, the internal constraints of the Biden administration, where that actually comes from without wanting to justify it. First of all, we need to understand it, I would say. Um, the second thing I would say is being aware of that we also have our own hypocrisies um, in EU trade policy and trade policy making. I mean, we also sub heavily subsidize our own industries, maybe not quite as discriminatory as the IRA, um, but we, we are also heavily um, 
handing out subsidies now for the semiconductor industries, but also aviation industry, and also in the agriculture sector. Thirdly, I would also say we should be aware of the, of the patience of the Biden administration, especially with the German, Germany and, and, and our Zeitenwende that it was not so easy in the beginning to initiate this huge change with regard to foreign and defense policy and spending and uh, 2% of GDP on defense spending and the um, special fund which is created and now our problems um, to procure defense and military equipment and so on. So I think there was great patience on the U.S. side for this. At the same time, keep talking with each other and try to find a solution to the problem. Because what we really don't want to get into is in a, in a situation where we have an increasing geopolitical frictional environment uh, globally. And in, in the West don't want to start fighting with each other and open up new vulnerabilities um, for, for third countries. So we need to solve this. And, and last but not least, I, I, would, I would also say the EU needs to be assertive. I mean, the, the, the issue of also discriminatory government procurement in the U.S. is not a new um, issue by America, is new, not a new issue. The 232 tariffs were also pretty painful. And you need to, I mean, you need to counter this. Not right now with a WTO dispute procedure. I think that would be really the wrong way to now bring the IRA to the WTO. I think that would be a really wrong move. But to say that you're displeased by the EU commission, yes, sure. I mean, that's that friends um, who are dating with each other <laughs> need to also address conflicts in a, I would say, solution finding oriented way and not in a rhetorical escalating way. Is European criticism resonating in the United States, uh, Fred? I don't have a strong sense that it is resonating. And, you know, I was thinking as I listened to Stormy and your comment Ram, about this conflict about cars, you know, on one hand, we have, an, we have an environment and a desire, an important desire to move away from fossil fuels and to more environmentally friendly vehicles. So one could argue if that's your sole objective, then you should say we should just give a lot of subsidies to get more of those cars on the road more quickly and so forth. But you have conflicting ones. You also have jobs and domestic concerns. And if you take it away from Europe for a minute, I can't imagine American taxpayers being happy that they would be using their tax dollars, which is what a subsidy is, to say subsidize Chinese manufactured electric cars. I just think that's a non-starter in our politics. It's just it, why would people don't say, well, why should you do that? Why are we taking our money and subsidizing the Chinese auto industry? There's a part of me that says. We should be uh, not have a preference whether where the car is manufactured. We really want to help the environment. But I also understand there are, there are other concerns that we've got to balance here. You know, the whole part of politics, it's compromise. I was listening to Chris Dodd, former senator the other day from Connecticut, saying, you know, if you run on a platform of compromise, you will never get elected. But once you're elected, if you don't compromise, you get nothing yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you hit, I mean, again, you, you come back to this point that all politics, but perhaps all trade policy is local, and that, that domestic di dimension is perhaps dominant. Stormy, you mentioned the WTO. We have to talk a little bit about the U.S. approach to the WTO. I think uh, many folks in Geneva are waiting for the USTR or for the U.S. administration to, to signal how it may want to be more constructive on reforming the, uh, the dispute settlement system. What are your expectations on this? So first, a disclaimer. I'm a great fan of the WTO, and I wish um, we 
could get it out of its trouble um, in all its uh, functions, in rule setting, in liberalization, in creating transparency and dispute settlement. That, that is not easy, we all know, but it has contributed, I think, massively to a rules-based uh, trading system in the past. Unfortunately, the appellate body ceased to function and with that also the trade dispute settlement process as a whole. And I really don't know how to get out of this. Um, it's pretty clear that a re-establishment of the old system will not happen. And a way, clear way forward um, how to reform the mechanism I think is also not there. And everything trying to fix little, little things like how long the appellate body members can still work on a case when they're already retired or the deadlines and time frames and the transparency and what they are allowed to write in their opinions and what not, this is not going to fix the, the bigger problem. There's a long, long waiting for, for the United States to put forward proposals, really reforming the dispute settlement uh, process. I haven't seen it coming so far. And uh, Fred, I don't know if it, if, if it actually will come. And maybe the EU needs to think a little bit more creatively um, in the meantime to where the red lines are and if they don't have to be moved in terms of um, giving up some things to save the system as a whole. Five years ago, I would never, ever have said that. But thinking about maybe we need to exclude some issues from the dispute settlement process or the appellate process, like trade defense instruments. And then last point, what I see great merit in, which what could get us forward are the plurilateral initiatives on e-commerce, but also on environmental issues. And I think many would love to see a more proactive role of the United States um, in these in these initiatives. Yeah. Fred, how do you convince a U.S. president to make the case for a multilateral trade institution like the WTO? I remember a line from uh, Madeleine Albright. She said, the problem with multilateralism is it's too many syllables and it ends in ism. Uh, <laughs> so, listen, the WTO, I believe, there are problems, for example, with the United Nations and the Security Council and the use of the veto there. So we had hoped the UN would prevent something like Ukraine ever happening. Mm -hmm. That was certainly the hope. Well, I think some of the global institutions, the UN is somewhat fallen short from its hopes and aspirations in this regard. It's done many things well. I think WTO in the dispute settlement is an area that we're not able to find common ground. I think the issues around sovereignty and how that impacts the United States is an issue. The other issue I think around the WTO is there's still a China problem. And the WTO is not constructed in a way that really can deal with China and its impact and influence on companies within China. When you talk about the WTO, we're really talking about China and it gets us back to issues around China. And we need to find common ground with the EU, Japan, Australia, and other trading partners, because only by having some alliance there can perhaps better practices with China emerge from that. That's been the larger issue. That's been the sort of the shadow over of the WTO. But also Stormy mentioned some, there are other areas we can work on in terms of the environment and so forth that maybe we have to find the areas where the WTO can work and be effective, not on dispute resolution, and get some wins there and give people an appetite that there is value and then 
find ways to expand that yeah. value. And when you say that the U.S. should reach out to countries like Japan, South Korea, Australia, the EU, do you do you have a particular format in mind? Do you think that sort of IPEF and the TTC are sufficient, or is this something that we should look to the G7 for, or is this more on a bilateral level or um, sectors technology specific? I'm not precisely sure, to be perfectly honest. I haven't given it sufficient thought. But obviously, the G7 would be a good place to talk about it, and also bilaterally. But finding a way that we can find common ground where there is some, EU, Japan, Australia, South Korea, and so forth, vis-a-vis China, would be helpful because China's will be very effective at picking off and playing them off against each other. And Germany has a different relationship with China, with autos and so forth, than other EU countries and then the United States may have. So it's not simple to find that common ground, which is why if it was simple, we would be there already. And final question, two years from now, we'll already have had the presidential elections. We'll know who's the next president. Do you expect trade to play an important role in the upcoming presidential election campaign? That's for you, Fred. And for you, Stormy, where do you hope that U.S. trade policy stands two years from now? What's sort of a a measure of success from your perspective if we had to look back at four years of the Biden administration? In terms of 2024, I think trade will be overshadowed by China. Both parties want to appear But the two are connected, right? Yes, the two two are connected. But I think China sort of dominates so much of that. But I think that both parties want to be seen as tough on China. At the same time, we're reliant on China. It's still our largest trading partner, followed by Canada and Mexico, but a very large trading partner. It's a complicated issue. And part of it, I think, is complicated by the fact that in many ways, China is not that interested in having a dialogue. It's excellent and important that President Xi Jinping and President Biden did meet. That was vitally important. In previous administrations, we had something called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, started originally by Secretary Paulson in the Bush administration, continued through Obama, and then stopped under President Trump. Trade will be so much overwhelmed by what's happening with China. Stormy? Yeah, I mean, it's Wish all lists. Christmas, so yeah. um, <laughs> I could make a, a long wish for the transatlantic trade relationship. Um, I hope that um, in the next couple of um, we'll find a um, final final agreement on aviation subsidies as well as the um, steel and alum- aluminum national security tax to get that out of the way. Um, I wish we had a mechanism with which to talk about new upcoming legislation earlier on to... Um, aware of problems uh, which those might create uh, transatlantic um, for both sides um, and um, also for areas which have an, ef- I mean, have an effect of trade but where you might not think immediately of trade automatically like everything around for example um, and one area where I think some problems might also be on the horizon is investment screening for outbound investment I mean there I see trouble in the making and we need to draw on so we need an well, and a way to use mechanism, so to say, um, the Transatlantic Economic Council, we made an initiative before the T- uh, TTIP uh, negotiations. There was such a mechanism already in place. Didn't work so well, I admit, like this. And then I, I also hope um, that we can coordinate more um, on export controls, on investment screening, how we deal with China. Um, I, I also would love to, to see the um, trilateral initiative, industrial subsidies traded and 
um, carrying it more as a whole. Um, also, all our initiatives on resilience um, and supply chains and uh, vulnerability as we could do them together. Um, our We are always cooperators and competitors, but sometimes I think we should lay aside a little bit our competitive impulses and work together a little bit more um, on vulnerability development. So I my thing is... Um, to to get us forward on many of the global issues of pressing concerns, health, environment, and so on, and forget about being caught for a second. And, 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 and work, the geopolitics um, might call for that as well. At least I take from both of you that will that that will yeah. still be dating, so to speak. That hasn't broken down, and that we resolve some of the issues uh, rather than perhaps have these very ambitious plans. For, let's start getting the issues out of the way first. One thing I did notice when I was chairman of the Expert Input Bank, I would go to a number of manufacturing plants. Boeing was certainly one, but many other companies where they made it very clear to employees, these products are destined for export. Your job relies on export and trade. One of the things I tried to champion as chairman was to say more companies need to do that because that would make people understand you know, actually, there is a give and take. We're getting some components in. We're shipping out goods to other countries around the world. That is creating economic activity. That's paying my paycheck. That's creating economic activity in the town I live in. And that's making making a difference. And more in that way, in a very small and at the micro level, company by company, can begin to chip away at this idea that trade is a bad thing. Trade is what's ruining jobs. Trade is what's taking away your job and your and your income. Thanks very much. I'm sure we could have gone on for quite some time, but unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. Stormy Annika Mildner, Fred Hochberg, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with me. We covered a lot of ground from dating transatlantic partners to trade is a four-letter word and what this all means for, um, or trade is not a four-letter word, I'm sorry. And what this, what this, all, what this all means for the, uh, for the Biden administration moving forward. Thanks so much. If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, please go to our website, at www.aig.co.uk slash gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022, or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.